electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Wall Street's worries. Stocks falling, price targets now dropping. So what is the best path ahead for your money? We discuss, we debate that with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Liz Young, Steve Weiss, Josh Brown, and Joe Terranova. I'll take you to the wall. Carl just gave you the market picture. I'll show you right here. Dow's down near 600, one and three quarter percent decline. S&P off by 2%. That's what the NASDAQ is down as well. 175, the yield on the 10-year. You need to know about oil, obviously, touching 130 earlier today before falling back. But all of these continued worries about what's taking place over in Ukraine, front and center for investors. And front and center now, Liz, for Wall Street, too, because price targets coming down on the S&P. Evercore cuts their target to 4,800 from 51. That's still 12 percent upside from here. I think anybody would take that the way we all feel now. City lowers their target to 47 from 51. And that's 10 percent upside from here. Is it time for everybody, Liz, to reset our expectations on this year for stocks? Well, I think the market's done it for us already this year and re-rated a lot of the stocks that were driving those strong returns for the last 18 months. But I do think it's a good time to sit back and admit that this is not a good setup for economically sensitive areas of the market, at least in the near term. And what we're all sitting here wondering is what's the breaking point, right? So when you look at where oil prices are, we sat back and thought about, all right, at what point do consumers actually hit that demand destruction level? And if we look at the amount that consumers are spending as, as a percentage of their overall spending on gas and energy, as of the end of January, it was 3.2%. The comfortable level that we can stay at is somewhere in the four, low fours. If we get above that level, that's usually where it breaks, which means that we have a little bit more room here for energy prices to go up. But if you just take how much gas prices have risen since the end of January until now, we're almost there. We're almost at that 4% level, and this starts to get worrisome. So either we hit a peak and we start to relax from here, or we keep going and it becomes a contraction picture. So Josh Brown, I mean, they go on, Evercore does, and say a, they say a test of 3670 while not our base case, cannot be ruled out. But these targets also suggest that after this pain, you're going to revert back to some sort of gain. Now, you may not be as optimistic as 5,100 once was, but how do you feel about cutting price targets, resetting expectations? Forget the targets themselves, but just the idea of resetting our expectations for how we came into the year because of everything that's now going on and the fact that it may persist for some time. And, oh, by the way, we got to worry about the Fed, too, not just Ukraine. Just the whole concept of moving price targets after the market does what it does. Like, I, I feel like these people are experts in telling you what just happened. What, is that worth anything? I'm not sure. I know. I'm that's why sure I say I forget t- the targets. What just happened exactly myself. why I said forget the targets. Uh, I'm focus not even referring on the, to the number. Focus on the idea. Focus yeah, on judge, the idea. Judge, I'm not. I am. I am. I'm not even talking about the specific target. If somebody's like 5,100 or 4,900, it doesn't make a difference. I, I'm, I'm referring, I guess, to this mentality that as markets fall, there's less opportunity, not more. Of course, that's not how it works. Or at least it hasn't last 300 years. I'll let you know when that math changes. But this is when strategists should be telling people, okay, actually, the prospect for equity returns on a go-forward basis are increasing because now there's fear, now there's pessimism, now there is positioning where people are, are getting to the point where maybe they're not long enough, right? That's actually what's taking place. I'm on the show every week for the last eight weeks saying it's a bear market. It's a bear market. Now you have all the major averages below their 200-day. And worse than that, you have the 200 days or 10-month moving averages flattening out. It's as clear as a bell 
that we're in a statistical bear market for most stocks. If not for Apple and Microsoft, we'd be in an actual statistical bear market for the indices. But the point is, is now when you want to start getting pessimistic, we had a 19% sell-off in the NASDAQ, right? 12% of the S&P. Now you want to get pessimistic? It makes no sense to me. So ignore the price targets entirely. Uh, the rationale behind the price targets is interesting, but just focus on this idea. The lower the market goes, the more potential upside. It doesn't work the other way around. Believe me. Steve Weiss, you know it's bad when Tom Lee's putting out a note today that says stocks are, quote, in no man's land. And, and he's been suggesting that, you know, we may not see a huge amount of downside, but he's been more optimistic than most. Now he says this, no man's land. So even the most bullish, it seems, are capitulating at least somewhat. Yeah, well, when I was on the show on Friday, you asked me uh, what would it take for me to get to get more constructive on the market, because I've been extremely negative since since before the turn of the year. And I said, when people stop being optimistic, but I still think there's too much optimism out there. I, I think it's so misguided to refer to this as another geopolitical flare up. In the past, the geopolitical flare-ups have had short-term impacts, very short-term, and it's generally just been related to a spike in crude, which over the following days, if not the next day, have declined back to more normal levels. This is really a global war. This is global economic war. And to Liz's point, I looked at some data today. The average, uh, the median uh, household income in the U.S. was 74000 and as of the end of January for 2021, whereas the cost inflation, again, on a median level to the average household is 3000 That puts you at 4%. So that, to me, is very, very real. And that 4% didn't come over a long-term period where you can adjust. It came as sticker shock. So my biggest concerns continue to be that you see estimates on individual companies continue to decline. We haven't seen enough of those. And the consumer. So the consumer drives it all. There's 70 percent of the economy. And we've seen the Michigan survey consumer confidence decline to lowest levels in 10 years. I think you'll see consumer spending decline. So it's hitting everywhere. And right now, we're just not really seeing it. Some of the stocks have reacted. But you take a look at the airlines. I mean, they're getting crushed. Only Alaska and Delta hedge. So they'll try and push those price increases on. I don't think they'll do it. I don't think they'll be able to do it, nor will others. So I continue to be negative on the market. Look, I'm not saying short the market here, even though on Friday after the show, I got a little more negative into the weekend. Um, what I'm saying is don't buy yet. It's not time well, to buy but yet. But hold on. I mean, because you, the you, downside people can't you, tolerate. You may, not being, you, you may not be saying short the market, but I mean, unless my notes are wrong, and I don't think they are, you're shorting Snowflake and you're shorting the financials. So, I mean, those are short bets against parts of the market. You may not be short the S&P, but what's the message there? So Snowflake is different. Let me give you Snowflake. So Snowflake, and you can tell me, yeah, but still grew you know, revenues 100%. But it's still way, way too expensive. So to me, it's a broken stock that's no different than Zoom or Teladoc or any of the others that have gotten crushed. In terms of the XLF, that's a hedge. So I put that on. I haven't sold any of my Goldman. I haven't sold any of my B of A. But I think it could be further downside there. The reason being is that what we had hoped was a steepening yield curve is not exactly happening, number one. Number two, I don't remember the last time there was any equity issuance. Forget about SPACs. They're a dead asset class. But in terms of IPOs or secondaries, you're going to see that come and come take its toll on earnings this quarter that we're in right now as companies, as banks start to guide. So that's a hedge against the market. Sure, but so you, what I've done on that, what but, but I've you done also, there. You also yeah, bought, the, you also bought the, the ProShares short queues, which may be, a, may, may be another hedge, but it still reflects a overall negative bet. Yeah, no, I, I'm extremely negative. So my advice to those who aren't short is don't start shorting now, because if you haven't seen that you should be short already, you're going to be a really weak-handed weak short seller. So it's too late for you. However, if you're, if you're perhaps more in tune with the market, more skilled at the market, I don't think it's too late to catch your positions. So that's what I'm doing. 
and uh, I continue to have very low equity exposure. I took it down some more going into the weekend, and I'm very comfortable with those levels. Right. I don't see the market rolling away. Unless you tell me that, that Putin is all, sudden, is all of a sudden going to start taking his meds or, you know, get back on the side of, of, of right instead of being so evil and so maniacal, then fine. But you don't have the Fed there backstopping you anymore. I don't recall the last time any member of the Fed said, hey, we're concerned about asset prices. Not yet. Uh, and that remains to be seen. The, the Fed put, by, by all accounts, Joe, is dead uh, right now. Right? Everybody couches it like right now. Let's see what happens. Let's see how things unfold. And then what happens next. So Tom Lee says no man's land. Joe T. says volatility is going to continue for the next several months, not weeks, months. You think that? Mm -hmm. I do. I think that investors have grown very impatient since the great financial crisis. I think they're unaccustomed to understanding uh, the value of what time means in a market. I think V-shaped recoveries have been the norm since the great financial crisis. And I think this is a U. And I think it's as clear to me as it possibly could ever be. We're in the midst of a U-shaped recovery. I think on the downside, corporate activity is going to buffer that type of decline. But I really don't see any type of catalyst on the upside. So, you know, you go back and you fall back upon the history of statistics. This may sound completely not relevant to the environment of now. But guess what? We're in a midterm election year. Go back to 1939. There's been 20 midterm election years from the occurrence of the midterm election to June 30th of the following year. The market has never been lower. In fact, twice it's been up double digits. I just think it's about marking time and marking time in a mannerism where the holdings that you have are holdings that are fundamentally qualitative in their nature. They are low beta exposure and the respectful evaluation. All right, so let me ask you this, because as of a few weeks ago, um, you mm-hmm. had turned a little more positive, right? And you posed the question not mm-hmm. two weeks ago. Is this a U? Is it a V? Yep. Is it an L? You didn't say U then. So mm-hmm. two weeks later now, you've made a definitive statement that you think this is a U. It's not going to be anything but that. I suppose an L would be worse, because sideways for whoever knows sure. h- how long would, would be worse. Go into more detail of how things changed for you in the last two, two, three weeks. Well, I I think things dramatically changed and evolved from where it was a a, a potential V to a U because of the Russia-Ukraine conflict and the complexity surrounding the the exacerbation of commodity costs, not only for energy, but also agriculture. And and there there is no OPEC for agriculture, which Mark Fisher will tell you when he appears on Wednesday. So that creates for the Federal Reserve just this this massively complicated scenario where, OK, 25 basis points, 50 basis points. I'm not exactly sure what they're going to do for the market, but how exactly is that going to overall increase supplies? Because supplies are what we really need right now. So I, I, I think the introduction of this conflict and the exacerbation and impact on inflation is the reasoning behind why now I observe this, and I think persistent volatility and a U-shaped recovery is in the cards. Forgive me for interrupting you, Joe. And on that note, and importantly so, uh, Elon Moy has breaking news for us from D.C. Elon? Well, Scott, Democrats and Republicans in both chambers of Congress are joining together on a new bill that would ban U.S. imports of Russian oil and gas, as well as end normal trade relations with both Russia and with Belarus. This is a rare moment of unity on Capitol Hill. The statement coming from the leaders of the trade committees in both the House and the Senate. And they say that taking these actions will send a clear message to Putin that his war is unacceptable and the United States stands firmly with our NATO allies. I do expect this to have broad support in Congress. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that she is in favor of these actions as well. And Congress can take these steps on its own. However, the bill would give the president some flexibility to raise tariffs on Russian goods even further, as well as call on the administration to push for Russia's removal from the WTO. But now Congress weighing in here, clearly showing there is bipartisan and bicameral support for banning Russian oil and gas, as well as ending normal trade relations with the country. Back to you. Elon, thank you. Elon Moy in D.C., uh, an important development there. Joe Terranova, uh, let me get you to 
opine on that. Um, this could very well be a quote unquote go it alone strategy by the United States because we can theoretically afford to not have Russian uh, oil and gas come here. Europe is a whole different equation. So the prospects of this being a, uh, a joint deal between the, the EU and, and the uh, United States seems highly unlikely, at least at the current time. What do you think? I think the result of that is what we saw last night when the market opened and the price of oil traded above $130. And, and that's going to be if a formal announcement is brought forth where we go at it alone banning the imports. I think that's where the price of oil is going to be settling in. I know I heard Elon talk about tariffs. Let's keep in mind there is something that President Biden and his administration have to their advantage, and that's the existing tariffs that are in place. They could be suspended, they could be vacated, and that would relax some of the inflationary pressures that we're currently feeling right now. All right. Um, it's not inflation on the mind of our headliner today. It's a word that a lot of people don't like to use when you talk about all this. Ed Yardeni is the president of Yardeni Research, and it's the S word, um, <laughs> the stagflation word. You really worried about that today? I think we're in it. Um, before the war, we had uh, a lot of data suggesting that we were experiencing an inflationary boom. Inflation was high, but at the same time, I think there was a widespread consensus, and I agreed with it, that uh, we'd see peak inflation maybe by March or April, and then we would get back down, not to 2%, but maybe down to 3 to 4%. But now as a result of the war and what's happened with commodity prices, uh, we're clearly looking at higher inflation, and peak inflation isn't going to be for a while. And then uh, the, the concerns, of course, is that we get more wage price spiral inflation. It's uh, getting to be a little bit of a deja vu with the 1970s all over again. Since the war, I think stagflation is the scenario that's probably most descriptive of what we're starting to see and what we'll see in the next several months, which is higher inflation than we thought before the war and slower economic growth. That would be Jay Powell's worst nightmare. Uh, yes and no. And in some ways, uh, he's gotten a, a, a reprieve here because I think he can stay behind the curve, well behind the curve of inflation uh, and argue that uh, there are extremely uh, complex geopolitical circumstances which uh, raise a lot of uncertainty. And so uh, the Fed, I think, uh, will continue, will raise interest rates, but will do it very, very gradually and, and uh, have a not just use the excuse, it's a good excuse uh, there are a lot of geopolitical uncertainties. This is not just a short-term geopolitical flare-up, as, as, as one of your panelists said. Uh, this is something uh, much more concerning. Sure, but then how are they going to deal with inflation? If inflation is going to remain elevated yeah. for many months ahead, therein lies the problem. He yep. can't be as cautious or as you know, reticent to raise rates because of these geopolitical concerns now if inflation is going to be worse than he thought. Well, the last thing the U.S. needs right now is a recession. I mean, we need to have a relatively strong economy and get get uh, through this geopolitical mess so that uh, we, we can be uh, stronger coming out of this uh, mess. But I, I think that uh, Powell will use this as an excuse to uh, explain why the Fed isn't uh, taking a tougher stance. Look, I don't think there's much the Fed can do about inflation uh, other than a Volcker 2.0. I mean, Volcker demonstrated that the only tool that the Fed really has to bring inflation down is to let interest rates rise to whatever level it takes to cause a recession, which then breaks the back of inflation. I don't see Vol uh, a Volcker 2.0 coming out of this Fed. You know, I'm looking at your targets and you're, you're getting decidedly more negative. Ed, mm -hmm. I, I reference at the very top of the program some of the price target cuts on the S&P that we've gotten. You go to 4,000 for 2022. Um, that's a big decline, yep. um, though you do see a huge rebound for stocks in 2023 back to 5,000. So it'd be a pull down and then a 25 percent rebound to a new record high. Yeah, I, I think right now uh, a lot of traders, even a lot of investors, are just kind of hoping that there will be some sort of uh, um, amazing overnight solution to this uh, geopolitical crisis in, uh, in in the Ukraine. And uh, if that were to happen overnight, the stock market would just absolutely roar to the upside. But I don't think it's going to be that easy th this time around. Th this has uh, got some long-term implications. Look, coming out of it, what's, uh, what I think will be uh, a, a good outcome is I think the Chinese will get the message that you don't want to go down this road. You don't want to invade Taiwan because you'll become a pariah nation 
uh, the way Russia has become a pariah nation. Liz Young, stagflation, is that on top of your mind? Because that would be a, somewhat of a game changer in the way we would need to think about the future, certainly the next 12 months. Well, I think for the first quarter, yeah, let's not discount the possibility that we have a really disappointing GDP number or even a minor contraction in GDP. The expectation right now is only for about 1.5% Q over Q growth. But here's the thing about that. The silver lining is that it wouldn't count as a recession unless it's two consecutive quarters. And if we have a little bit of a relaxation, it could be a demand relaxation, which then solves some of the inflation problem, right? Because the solution here is either that we get a bunch more supply or that demand calms down. It's just that it's such a fine line for demand to calm down enough that inflation isn't a huge issue, but not too much that we end up in a recession. I also think that people are absolutely overestimating what the Fed can do early on in this hiking cycle. I think they go in March, but then there's a long period between that March and May meeting where rate hike odds can come down, and I think that's going to happen. Ed? Yeah, I, I think the Fed is going to be very, very incremental. I think they will do 25 basis points, figuring that's not going to do much of, of anything to complicate this, the current situation. Look, I think for the stock market, uh, the issue is all valuation. We, we've seen since the beginning of the year that air has come out of the uh, PE multiple. And uh, at first it uh, did so because of concerns that the Fed was going to be a lot more aggressive in raising uh, interest rates. I don't think it's going to be very aggressive at all uh, this year. But now we've got the geopolitical issue uh, leading to higher inflation, more persistent inflation. And stagflation is not a great environment for valuation multiples. And uh, we, did, we actually didn't change our earnings uh, estimates for this year or next year because we are going to get higher inflation. Higher inflation boosts revenues. And I think companies, to a certain extent, are going to be able to offset that. Uh, but the valuation multiple, I think, is going to come in as a result of higher inflation and uh, a gradually tightening monetary policy. It's pretty surprising to me that you wouldn't take your earnings numbers down. I mean, a demand, yeah. a demand pull down, even in the face of, of higher inflation, does that. How can earnings well, expectations yeah. not come in? That doesn't yeah, make no, sense to me. Uh, no, I understand that, uh, what you're saying, but uh, it's the it's the price inflation that I think uh, boosts revenues, and I think uh, companies have had a very good record of maintaining their profit margins uh, with productivity. Um, I, I think uh, we're we're going to find that that will be the surprise is that the earnings hold up uh, reasonably well. I mean, I didn't increase them, I didn't decrease them, I just kept them a level. It's the valuation multiple that I think is going to get hit here. I don't see a recession coming out of this thing. I mean, it's. Uh, it's a it's a word now. You know, you said the S word, but the recession word, the R word, is uh, obviously more likely now than it was before the um, uh, before the uh, crisis in the, in the Ukraine. Uh, but uh, I'm I'm sticking with the earnings numbers, just lowering my valuation multiple. Well, that's why I suggested the S word would be more difficult for Jay Powell to get out of. Right? If you're in a recession, you know what you, yeah. you know what you're in. You know, generally speaking, how to how to get out of that stagflation mm -hmm. perhaps is a much larger issue. Ed, yeah. provocative as always. I appreciate it. If, quick last word. Well, I, I think with the with regards to earnings, uh, keep in mind that uh, higher energy prices also mean higher earnings for the energy companies and material companies are also going to be surprisingly strong. All right. We'll see. Ed Yardeni, thank you. Appreciate thank that you. very much. All right. Josh Brown, the other flip side to all of this, if you try and find uh, anything positive to hang your hat on, <clears throat> buybacks. David Costin, Goldman Sachs, writing about it today. We raised our 2022 S&P 500 buyback forecast to a trillion dollars. Chevron, HP, AMD, Coca-Cola, they've all announced thus far. How much is that a savior, if any, to some of this negativity that we're witnessing? The companies are going to get out of this window, by the way, and or they're going to get into the window where they can do it or out of the period where they can't. And they're going to look at their stock prices and buy back a heck of a lot of stock. Yeah, I don't know that it's a savior, but it's a great question, Scott. And I think I would characterize it as an offset. And if you think about the mentality yep. shift that we have now gone through in this market virtually overnight, it is startling. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this. There are zero, zero IPOs priced for sale in the month of March. You know what it was last March? It, it was literally 43 with a 73% year-over-year change year-to-date IPO pricing. Only 16 this year. Think about last summer, 61 in June, 55 in July. All of that activity 
represented vast quantities of supply coming into the market. They drowned us in new offerings and not small ones, billion dollars, $3 billion, $8 billion. The valuations were huge. The amounts of money being raised were huge. Some of these were direct listings, which meant insiders were able to sell on day one with no restrictions. That's gone. So we've had this multi-year period of tons of supply hitting the market, and now we're going all the way in the other direction. You can't price a deal here with a straight face. You'll get hit with an egg. And you're going to have probably a record year for buybacks because of the record strength for corporate balance sheets. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't save you from a war with Russia, obviously. It doesn't save you from $5 at the pump, obviously. But it does offset a lot of negative sentiment. And if we look at look what Berkshire spent the last two years doing. They bought $51 billion worth of their own stock. That stock's at a record high right now. It's not an accident. So I think it helps. It's not the answer to economic growth, of course, but it is a factor out there that I think has to help prevent us from getting too bearish on high-quality large-cap names. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Weiss has a new buy. I'm going to tell you about that. Joe Terranova got stopped out of three new positions. I'm going to tell you about that. And we're going to take a look at Ford and General Motors. They're dropping. Where do they get nickel? for their EV batteries. Take one guess. Why are the stocks down a lot? Adam Jonas has a new note from Morgan Stanley. Phil LeBeau is going to break that down, tell us where the stocks could go next. Plus, shares of Kohl's down 11%. That's not the greatest vote of confidence as the company has its analyst day today. Literally today. They lay out their plan. The stock goes down 11%. They've been in a battle with an activist investor. We're going to speak to him next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken continued his tour of Europe with a stop in Latvia today, saying that the U.S. will aid Baltic nations if they are attacked by Russia. We will defend every inch of NATO territory against aggression coming from anywhere at any time. Our commitment to Article 5, an attack on one is an attack on all, is ironclad. The president has called it sacrosanct, and no one, no one should have any doubt about that. Bill Cosby avoiding more legal challenges today. The Supreme Court said that it will let stand a decision by Pennsylvania's highest court to throw out Cosby's sexual assault conviction. The high court declining to hear a bid by prosecutors to undo last year's ruling and reinstate his conviction. Cosby was released from prison in June. And as the pandemic now enters its third year, data from Johns Hopkins University show the global death toll from the coronavirus has surpassed six million people. Scott. All right, Rahel, thank you. That's Rahel Solomon. All right. I mentioned a couple of moves that uh, we need to get into. Steve Weiss, a new buy. Sabanya Stillwater, talk to me. So uh, this is also more of a hedge. Look, I like the company. I like management. It's the old Stillwater mining that was bought by 
or merged with Sabanye Gold. They are one of the largest platinum and palladium producers in the world, in addition to having a, a, a gold mining operation. So I still think those commodities go up because I don't think that the, the issues with Russia are short term. So that's why I bought it. It's not a huge position, but it is a position. All right, so it's Joe, both offensive and defense. Okay, Joe, stopped out of three things. Um, Goldman, the VGK, mm-hmm. and the IEMG. So, and there'll be more to come. Nike and NVIDIA right now, they're both getting very close to where my stop close is. Look, you have to have a risk management strategy in place, Scott. And some of the best things I've done this year has been getting stopped out of names like Fortinet, DocuSign and CrowdStrike. So I implore everyone on the show, if you're going to be trading, you have to trade with a stop. Limit your risk. All right. Uh, as you have done. Uh, thank you, Joe. All right. I mentioned Ford and General Motors. Uh, Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas dropping a new note today about Ford and the EV makers. Our Phil LeBeau joins us now with more. Uh, Phil, the stocks are sinking. New low for GM. Yep. Adam Jonas says the following. Last Wednesday, Ford announced a target of 2 million EV unit sales by 2026. That's a lot of EV battery material, he says. Where will Ford source all these raw materials? Call us if you have any ideas. <laughs> and you know, Phil, why, why does he say that? Because where do they get the materials from? Oh, uh, Scott, this is what everybody in the auto industry has been talking about for some time. If you listen to all of the projections that are put out there, and it seems like we get a new one every three or four weeks from a different CEO in the auto industry around the world, it's always a greater number of EVs that they plan to build by 25 or 26 or maybe maybe even by 2030. And yet the supply is just not there. And, And today the focus for Adam Jonas is nickel. And here's what he says within his note. This is not a question of capital near term. No amount of capital can create new nickel mines by 2024. And yet, just last week, what did Ford say? Ford said that it plans to increase the number of EVs it has in production on an annual basis to 2 million per year by 2026. That's a dramatic increase from the previous projection. They're also going to be raising the commitment that they will be spending when it comes to EVs to 50 billion dollars by 2026 it was 30 billion by 2025 jim farley when we talked with him last wednesday after they made this announcement i said to him look you guys don't have the the nickel nobody in the industry has as much nickel as is going to be needed here's what he had to say we're committed this two million we'll have the raw material all the supply chain the vertical integration and now now we're just finishing the vehicles that will be coming out and converting our manufacturing facilities. But don't again, don't bet against Ford. He also went on to say during that interview, we will be having more announcements. You'll be hearing from us. So clearly they are going to be making greater commitments to source that nickel. Now, where they're going to get it from, Scott, is a good question. As you take a look at the primary auto stocks, and we're talking about the U.S. auto stocks, we're talking about not just Ford, but we're talking about GM, Stellantis, Uh, You've got Tesla, obviously, which has a huge commitment, not only here in North America, but also now in Europe and obviously in China when it comes to sourcing nickel, lithium, all of the key components that you need for an EV battery. And yet the question remains, Scott, where is this industry going to get as much as everybody is committed to? Or at some point, do all of the automakers gradually come out and say, yeah, we're not going to hit those targets that we put out there for 25 or 26? Well, I mean... We can put our brains in gear, pardon the pun, and <laughs> suggest that there's no way they're going to meet their targets, given the fact that Russia. Right. That's essentially Ru- what Adam well, Jonas is saying. Well, of course. That's, that's what he's saying. And Russia what others the, in the industry will admit to, but not publicly. Russia's the world's largest producer of primary nickel products used yep. in, in EVs. So if you have a game changer from here forward in the sourcing of that material, there is no possible way that they will meet those targets in the time frame which they lay out. Yep. Tesla shares are obviously not falling a lot today, but Musk has tweeted about this issue uh, in his own right. Oh, absolutely. Um, in, in the past as well, talking about it being the single most important issue of nickel supplies. So, I, you know, I don't need necessarily Jim Farley to, to tell me don't bet against Ford. That's great. What else is he going to say? Tell me where you're going to get the nickel. Yeah, you're exactly right. This is what every single analyst is talking about. If they haven't written about it, like Adam Jonas has, 
They've talked about it. It's talked about amongst executives in the auto industry. If you talk with the people who work with the battery suppliers, almost all of them scratch their head and they go, there's, there's no way. There is no way this industry worldwide can hit the targets that are out there. And yet you hear these pronouncements made. Now, some of that, Scott, you could make an argument was that there was the froth that was in the market, let's say six months to a year ago from startups, EV startups, who said, we're going to have a commitment for X number of EVs. And as those stocks moved higher, there was pressure that was building on the traditional automakers to show that they have the commitment for the future. So they made these commitments. And I'm not saying that they're lying. What I am saying is everybody is making this commitment, and it's a game of musical chairs. There's just not enough nickel and some of the other key components in the world right now. And is that likely to change anytime soon? No. And almost every analyst will tell you that. Love that you're here, Phil. Thank you. That's Good to Phil be here. All right. Uh, Phil LeBeau with that story for us. Up next, the ETFs to watch amid all of this volatility. Halftime's back right after this. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. Russian stocks no longer trade on world exchanges. Russia has been deleted from major world index providers like MSCI and Russian ETFs. Well, they've been halted in the U.S. But the fallout for the mutual fund and the ETF community may be much wider than just those who had money invested in Russia. Let's ask Dave Matza. He's the head of product at Direxion. Dave, you manage the Direxion Russia Bull two times shares ETF. That provides two times the exposure to a market cap weighted index of Russian companies. When I talked to you last week, you were planning to cease trading on March 11th, but now the NYC halted trading for your fund and three others on Friday. How are you and the ETF industry reacting to what is essentially the forced closure of your funds? Yeah, Bob, I think what we're seeing is really unprecedented action being taken by index providers and fund providers. Because we're in an environment where we're unable to transact in Russian securities. So two things have happened. One, the ETFs themselves are seeking to track indices that can't, tra- that can't trade. So what's happened is index providers have effectively written those assets down to zero. And fund providers have had to do the same thing to match. So the securities, the Russian securities themselves, are a bit stranded in the particular ETFs. Uh, but this is because the underlying markets are untransactable. And this is something which is very different than what we've seen in the past. Yeah. You know, when I talked to you last week, you used the phrase, this is the retreat of globalization played out in the investment space. Now, Russia is a war situation, which is unusual, obviously, but you voice broader concerns about global investing. What about other regimes that are not at war, but we don't approve of, like China? Are parts of the world starting to become uninvestable in general? Yeah, I think as we spoke before, the investors and traders have been focused for years on diversifying portfolios away from the U.S. We've been told that that's the right thing to do, especially as valuations in emerging markets have become much cheaper than, than the U.S. equity market. And we've seen money move toward emerging markets. But this particular action, uh, I think it's a wake up call for investors, whether you're a do it yourself or, or work with an advisor to understand that the world order has changed. And just as we've seen globalization be rolled back. Uh, over the last few years, and in particular the last few months, with this particular aggression by by Russia, if we see this in other places that uh, maybe have larger weightings uh, in global equity benchmarks, then investors do need to be aware that their portfolios may need to be positioned differently. So I'm advocating for investors to always know what they own, but especially understand that we may be told that certain markets are uninvestable, even if they were investable before. 
Okay, coming up on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern time, we're going to have a lot more on this topic. What is investable and what is not internationally? And what's the criteria? We'll be talking with Dave and Ben Johnson, the director of global ETF research at Morningstar, as well as Jim Davalos. He's the CEO of Horizon Kinetics. He runs the Horizon Kinetics Inflation Beneficiaries ETF. That's a hot ETF right now, billion dollars in assets. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime. Back right after this. All right, welcome back. I just wanted to show you the market deteriorating a little bit from where we started 45 minutes ago. Dow's down 2%, uh, just about even there. 665 is where we are there. Remember, the S&P's been really was in that, I guess you call it a channel between, let's say, 43, 4,400. It's broken below that today. Down 95 points. That's a loss of a bit greater than 2%. NASDAQ equally as bad today from a percentage standpoint. And the Russell 2000 is down as well by about one and a half percent. So not quite as bad, but nonetheless uh, selling off as well. Speaking of selling off, the battle between Kohl's and an activist investor in the spotlight today as the company holds its long awaited analyst day. John Duskin has been pushing that company to make significant changes for more than a year. He is with us live now in a CNBC exclusive. Thought it was timely to have you back since the company's meeting the analysts. Welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. Good, good to be back again. It's good to have you. So the company lays its plan out today. Low single-digit sales growth, 100 new but smaller stores, and they want to make Sephora a $2 billion brand. Your reaction? You know, it doesn't change much for us. I, I think the, the stock response is telling. You know, we, we had a lot of skepticism that we've been sharing with people, and I, you know, I think investors are, are, are voting with their feet today. It, it seems like um, people are you know as disappointed as we are. Um, you know, it's interesting to think about um, you know, the plan that they're giving us is um, just getting back three years from now to where they were last year in terms of EBIT. So it's it's really very understandable to see why people are, are not excited about this, um, why it doesn't feel like there's a lot of confidence in what management is, is telling us the future looks like. Um, we, we don't really see much uh, margin improvement. You know, again, last year they did an 8.6% EBIT margin. This year they took that down to 7.3%. And um, and three years from now, if they hit their guidance at the midpoint, they'll be at 7.5 percent. Uh, most of their EPS growth is coming from uh, share purchases, which, um, you know, we like share purchases, repurchases, of course. But using the shareholder money to grow, you know, that should be additive. You know, the business should be going a lot better than low single digit. even. I, I, I mean, obviously had a feeling that you were going to seize on the fact that the stock is down significantly today to suggest that investors are rejecting what. The company had to, to say today, um, and it, it's hard to counter that given what, what the stock is doing. However, um, March 1st, when the company reported earnings, I think you'll admit those earnings weren't bad. I mean, the earnings beat, the, margin, the, the margins were better than expected. You mentioned the capital return plan, um, approved a 100% increase in the dividend, and they plan to buy back a billion dollars in shares in 2022. Now, most investors would look at that. And they would say, well, the shares are up 12 percent year to date. And that also accounts for today's decline versus an XRT, which is down 17 percent in a very challenging environment and say, OK, I'm willing to give this company the benefit of the doubt and more of a runway to figure out and execute their plan. What's so difficult about that? Well, Scott, you know, um, I, I, I look at the report through a little bit of a different lens. I don't think the numbers were that great. This is a company um, you know, at its most basic level is losing market share to all their competitors. Sales aren't growing versus 2019. They'll probably be one of the only retailers who will not have sales growth versus 2019 in what's one of the most robust economic um, consumer environments we've had in a very long time. Even if you give the company credit for having um, every store have a Sephora in it, they still would not have grown sales or maybe just barely met 2019 sales levels. So this is really a high risk strategy. They're talking about taking up um, capital expenditures materially. They're talking about building inventories materially. They're talking about um, growing SGNA and all um, just hopefully waiting for sales uh, growth to happen. And, and this is a company that's not been able to grow same store sales uh, for a decade. And so I think it's a very high risk strategy. And um, if, there, if there's little margin for error, if they miss anything on the top line, they'll miss these projections substantially because they're spending so much money and spending so much more CapEx. And, you know, to us, it really just speaks to the idea that this is a company that needs to go private. 
Um, they didn't talk about the real estate value. There's $8 billion of real estate value here that's, that's idling on the balance sheet. And they're just not doing enough. You mentioned a billion dollar share buyback. That's not enough. They have $8 billion of real estate value on the balance sheet. Um, it's more than the market cap of the company. So we really, um, you know, while they're doing, I'd say, small steps, baby steps, I don't think they're doing enough to create value. Uh, and they haven't to date. And, you know, you said, shouldn't we give them some time? This is the same story if we go back to the greatness agenda in, in 2014 that wasn't successful. Um, you know, th th this is, um, you know, they, they launched a plan in, in October of 20 that didn't generate shareholder value. So it's not like um, these are a whole new set of initiatives and the company, you know, um, hasn't been trying. They've tried for a long time. And I think it's just it's time for shareholders to see some regime change here. It's, it's, regime change here. It, it sounds to me, though, that outside of a sale that you're not really willing to entertain anything that Michelle Goss has to say, who, by the way, is going to be on the closing bell this afternoon. Um, I think she may be watching this now. So you have a chance to speak directly to her after she spoke to the analysts that cover this company. What do you say directly to that? Well, Michelle and I have a, a, a very good um, constructive dialogue. We've been talking to Michelle for a very long time now. I think Michelle very much knows how we feel that um, more needs to be done. I think they're missing some of the basics with inventory turn, the merchandise architecture, the merchandise assortment, the value proposition that I don't think they're addressing. You know, think again, think about this. We've added Calvin, Tommy, Eddie Bauer, Nike, Adidas, Under Armour, exited brands that weren't performing. We still can't grow the top line. So it's very troubling. Um, and, uh, you know, a sale is not the only path forward. We've, we've mentioned this um, a couple other times, a couple other letters, that material change on the board, uh, change of control on the board, uh, and getting the right people in there with the right expertise to oversee a transformation. We do think the company can um, generate material shareholder returns and, and grow EBIT much faster than um, this current board and management team they, configuration is projecting. They, they also lay out in their, their live Q&A um, which I, I'm not sure if you, you heard this or had the opportunity to hear it or not, but none, nonetheless, I, I'll, I'll read it to you, uh, that they expect the Sephora investment to pay back in three and a half years, and they see it as both accretive from the operating margin level and the, and the profit level. Are you supportive of what the company's trying to do with a very popular brand like Sephora? You know, we've always said that we like the Sephora initiative. I, I do believe that they'll, um, they'll bring a different customer in the store. It should drive traffic. We think all those things are positive. But again, I think we questioned in a letter we put out last week at what expense. Um, I, I don't doubt that the company thinks it's a creative, but it's just hard to make the math work, right? Um, they're going to spend $2.5 billion of CapEx. That's, um, uh, you know, almost um, $800 million a year, and it's a lot more than they've been spending. And if you think about it and, and lay that over the number of stores that are going to have Sephora, it's almost a million dollars per Sephora store. Uh, it's a significant amount of CapEx um, to roll out. And, um, and you know, we, we're, we challenged, we're, we're challenged to find a way for that to be a creative. And they, you know, they'll say it's a creative, but they really won't share the math and the, and the numbers behind it. So it's always difficult. And there's been a lot of skepticism. You know, Amazon was supposed to be a creative. Well, we never saw it be creative to the bottom line. Proof's going to well, be a lot of skepticism. Proof's going to be in the pudding. Um, there's no doubt about that. And um, Michelle's going to be asked about it on the closing bell, as I, I mentioned, when she Thank joins you. us, Sarah. So I know she's looking forward to that interview, as, as we are as, as well. Let me ask you quickly before I let you run. It's a, it's a bit of a turn, obviously, but Bed Bath & Beyond. You still have a small position in there, from what I understand. What do you think about Ryan we Cohen do. trying to shake things up now? You still have some of your board peeps on the, uh, in, in the boardroom. Yeah, let me just say... Um, you know, we've always highlighted that we thought Baby was a tremendous value at this point, probably worth more than the whole company. Um, I have complete faith and trust in Mark. I think Mark's done an excellent job. I think he said a couple of speed bumps. I think he's been quick to acknowledge that himself. I think he's addressed those and I think he's on the right track. Uh, Ryan, obviously, has a bit of a cult following, so not surprised to see the, the, the stock uh, reacting as well as it is. Um, but uh, I, I think um, I think the company is um, well on the way to achieving their three year plan. I think Mark's doing a good job, and um, and I'm sure they'll actively engage with Ryan. I don't know Ryan personally, but I'm sure they'll actively engage with Ryan um, and, and listen to his um, suggestions and concerns. Will you, are you going to wait around to see what happens, or are you going to take advantage of the pop in the stock to just get out today? <laughs> you know, I've always thought the stock was worth a lot more, even after today's move. So 
um, you know, we're long-term shareholders, and I'll be here to see the long-term unfold. All right. It's good talking to you as always. John Duskin, I appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on. All right. Take care, guys. Yep. Again, Nicole's CEO, Michelle Goss, is going to be on the closing bell again this afternoon. Don't want to miss that interview, her response, perhaps rebuttal to what you just heard from Mr. Duskin. There she is. We'll see her later this afternoon. Final Trades next. All right, we're back. Josh Brown, I wanna, uh, we're going to talk about Oxy in just a second uh, because there's an interesting dynamic among two iconic investors. SoFi, Josh Brown, did, did you suggest last week, correct me if I'm wrong, somebody's bringing this up on Twitter, and I just want to bring it up to you, that under $10, and forget the fact that Liz is here, under $10, uh, you'd buy it, you'd consider buying it, that it would become more attractive to you because it's under 10 right now. Yeah, and I think Liz is a huge asset to the company. I have not pulled the trigger yet, whoever asked you the question, but this is very much on my radar as a disruptive company that just got lumped in with a lot of other fintech stocks that have been killed. I really don't understand why it's as low as it is. I'm going to do a little bit more work, but I may end up owning this. Okay. Uh, How much lower does it have to go before you get real interested? It's not about that anymore. It's about me. I'm running a company. I don't have like 18 hours a day to read about stocks. When I get to it, I'll get to it. But uh, it's very attractive to me. I do believe Anthony Noto is one of the best operators in in this industry. And I think there's going to be upside if and when the pressure to blow out of these stocks ends. A lot of what's going on with this name and others has nothing to do with the fundamentals of the company. It's about who else owns the stock and how much redemptions they're getting from their investors. And that creates opportunities. So that's why one of the reasons it's on my radar. Okay. And no. uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. All right, good. Our, I'll keep no, you updated, bro. Our, our Twitter peeps, they, they listen intently, and uh, they wanted an update. So I'm glad they reached out to me, and I'm glad I asked you. Um, all right, we have the Oxy thing, which is interesting, right? Icon's fully out. Buffins, Buffett's been buying. I just wonder what it says about where you should be in terms of energy. Um, Joe, give me 10 seconds on the energy trade right here. I'm staying with it, and I think you have to stay with it because it's non-correlated to the overall equity market itself, and very few assets right now can provide that. Okay. Oh, by the way, the Oxy CEO is on tomorrow with Brian Sullivan, 6 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. Don't miss that. Let's do quick final trades. There she is, uh, Vicki Holub. Uh, Steve Weiss, quick. Cash, not buying anything here. Mm. Josh Brown. Charge point, looking sexy. All right, Liz Young? Short-term treasuries. All right, Joe T. CVS. All right, I appreciate that. Uh, Stocks in a bit of hurt today, uh, not getting any better over the prior hour either. The exchange begins now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.